Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Pattern Recognition, a show that connects the dots that lead to good business decision making. I'm your host, John Hu, current investor at Norwest Venture Partners and former investment banker at Goldman Sachs. We've got a very unique episode today that I am incredibly excited to dive into as it doesn't fit into our standard business profile. And what I mean by that is that I had the pleasure of sitting down with Jonathan Reckford, the CEO of Habitat for Humanity, which as many of you know, is the gold standard for a well-run and highly impactful global nonprofit organization. Now, Jonathan himself is a Moorhead and loose scholar that started his career at Goldman Sachs prior to receiving his MBA at Stanford. Jonathan also has helped lead a number of highly successful for-profit institutions, including Disney, Circuit City, and Best Buy, prior to joining Habitat as CEO in 2005. And under Jonathan's 13 years of leadership, the organization has grown its global impact by a magnitude of 10, where in 2018, Habitat built or improved the homes of over 8.7 million people. Letting that sink in, that is 8.7 million people empowered by Habitat in just a single year. So in today's episode, Jonathan and I discuss how one goes about running one of the most impactful global nonprofits while simultaneously running one of the largest private home builders and a highly profitable retail chain. We'll also dive into how one ties together business efficiency with social impact and why that is so important for recruiting and inspiring today's generation of graduates. So why don't we get started? Hey, Jonathan, how's it going? Going great, John. Nice to be with you today. Yeah, it's always great to connect with a UNC alum, especially. So excited to dive into your career here, as well as what you're doing at Habitat. Terrific. Great. So why don't we start with your background and how you went from the for-profit industry to leading Habitat? Great. I always laugh. I think my career can only be explained with the idea that God has a sense of humor. I grew up in North Carolina and had the thought I was going to go to law school and go into politics. And I came to the realization I had no interest in being a lawyer and had to think about plan B. I talked my way into a job at Goldman Sachs in corporate finance right out of college, though I was completely unprepared for that as a poli-sci and English major and suffered mightily for the hubris of telling them I would learn finance fast and they could teach other people how to communicate. But it was also a great education and also learned I probably wasn't cut out to be an investment banker, but wanted to go off and, and gain some experience that would help me regain perspective. And I had a couple of major inflection points. And the next one, I was lucky enough after Goldman to get a grant from the Henry Luce Foundation and spent a year working in Seoul, Korea, where I was both doing marketing work for the Seoul Olympic Organizing Committee in preparation for the 88 Olympics that they were hosting. And then Ended up through a longer story I won't tell, coaching the Korean rowing team, <laughs> and uh, which is a little like the Jamaican bobsled team, but spent that year living in the training camp with the Korean coaches and athletes. And it was just a complete change in every possible way. And that was a year that it was really important to just stretching my view of the world. And I came back from that year interested in business, but with the idea of doing something mission-oriented long-term. And back then, only Stanford and Yale actually believed that nonprofits needed professional management, though that's now a very mainstream idea, and ended up going to Stanford where I could get an MBA with a certificate in public and nonprofit management. And while there, got convinced that I could learn faster in the private sector and then hopefully at some point bring that across into the nonprofit sector. And I, I think that's less true today, potentially, but 
I was really interested in how companies grow and growing new businesses and ended up first with Marriott Corporation, working on new business development and new idea business ideas for them, and then the Walt Disney Company, and then was recruited to Circuit City Stores. Sadly, they're gone, but they were starting up something called CarMax at the time. And I thought that was fascinating that they were going to disrupt the car, the automobile uh, used car business the way they had disrupted the electronics retailing business. And so I was head of strategy for Circuit City. We took CarMax public. That was good. And then Circuit City was under heavy attack from the resurrected Best Buy. And I really wanted to have an operating role and wasn't looking, but was recruited to be president of Musicland Stores, which was back then, for any of your listeners who are old enough to remember going to the mall to buy music, back then they were the, the largest specialty retailer in the country, selling movies and music and other entertainment products. So I was running 1,400 stores, and then Best Buy bought Musicland. And I had long thought, that I wasn't going to have a permanent career in the private sector. And I thought maybe now's the window. So I stayed for the first year to help with the integration of the merger and then walked away. And I usually tell people, don't leave if you don't know what you're going to do next. And in this case, I broke that rule. And the next big inflection point was it wasn't that easy to make a jump to the nonprofit world. And I actually ended up going on a short-term mission trip to India where God really broke my heart all over again around global poverty issues. And I came back from that and turned down some very good business jobs, thinking I'm really headed for the nonprofit world. Got to the finals of a couple of nonprofit jobs, didn't get them because perfectly logically, they hired somebody who had already run a nonprofit. And suddenly all the doors closed and I hadn't really had to look for a job in close to 15 years. And so that was a great time for my family. It was a great time for kind of regaining perspective again and preparation, and then a sort of frustrating time from an ego perspective, because it was used to rejection. But I think it was a fantastic formative time. And I'd had an advocation of helping coach pastors on leadership, and I was always interested in helping churches grow. And to my surprise, my local church, which had exploded in size, asked if I would come and help lead the church and be the administrative pastor, essentially managing all the ministries of the church so that the senior pastor could focus on spiritual leadership and preaching. And it wasn't at all what I was looking to do. And it was the first time I've ever not followed the advice of most of my friends, which was a little scary, but ended up going to work for my local church. And it was really interesting. The last headhunter I talked to right when I made that decision was recruiting me to, for an internet business. And I remember thinking, oh, that's a great job. Pause. I'm going to go work for my local church. And I thought, I will never hear from you again. And two years later, when I wasn't looking and happily working away at the church, she called back and she was co-lead on the Habitat for Humanity search. And if I could have, you know, named one job that put everything I cared about together, it really would have been Habitat for Humanity. I just thought they'd never pick me. But that ended up, to my great surprise, all coming together in 2005. As you can tell a little bit from this, I was never very good at keeping a job, but this is year 14 I'm working on right now. And I have absolutely loved working at Habitat. And the organization has grown fantastically since then, so much so that I'd imagine most of the audience is familiar with Habitat's mission to a broader degree. And what I'd love is if you could give a bit more context into just all of the different avenues that Habitat is working to make an impact on. I think almost everyone, especially in the U.S., has heard of Habitat for Humanity. A lot of people are surprised to know how much more than we do than they think of we joke that the two things we are best known for turn out not to be true. Most people believe that President Carter both started and runs Habitat for Humanity. 
he doesn't. He is certainly our most famous volunteer along with Mrs. Carter and used to serve on our board and still this will be the 36th time he and, and Mrs. Carter spent a week building with us, but they are only volunteers, as they would say. The second is people think we give away houses. And in fact, our model has always been a partnership with families in need of decent housing where they put in sweat equity instead of a down payment and putting in hundreds of hours of helping build their homes and their neighbors' homes. They get training in financial literacy and budgeting and home maintenance, and then they purchase the home with an affordable mortgage. And we recycle those mortgage payments in the community to help other families have their opportunity. So that basic hand up, not a handout model is really what made Habitat work. A lot of people are surprised to know we serve in about 70 countries worldwide, and the great majority of the families we touch are outside the U.S. And I think because we're so well-known and so ubiquitous across the U.S., people are surprised by that because we are routinely one of the largest private home builders in America through sheer replication. We have over 1,200 local Habitat chapters in the United States. So our basic model is affordable housing. In addition to directly building new housing, we do neighborhood revitalization where we work in coalitions, starting with the community to, in addition to building new homes, to rehab and repair homes, and to try to create all the conditions for a healthy community. One of the most exciting areas that's been a growth area for Habitat is that we are increasingly trying to influence the way markets work around the world. We've become a global leader in housing microfinance, trying to, and convincing the microfinance industry to start lending for home improvement and we've become a leader in advocacy as well for good housing policies. And so both of those have led to pretty dramatic expansions. And I think in 2005, when I joined, we were helping about 125,000 people a year have new or improved housing, which is our most important metric. Last year for our fiscal year 18, we were able to help 8.7 million people. Wow. So it's, we've had pretty dramatic growth. The other interesting thing that some of your listeners may know, which is I would call us leveraged philanthropy because now we have held by our countries and local affiliates billions of dollars in mortgage receivables. But in addition, we run a chain of over a thousand Habitat for Humanity restores that is a really nice triple bottom line contributor. And last year are primarily in the U.S. and Canada. The stores generated over $450 million in revenue and contributed about $140 million profits to our home building work. And basically the model there is somebody who is moving, remodeling, will come and take anything that can be pulled out and resold. And we sell all those products and then the profits go back into the mission. So that's become a nice additional engine where some of our best affiliates between their mortgage receipts and their restore profits could actually be sustainable if they weren't trying to grow just based on those. And I'm putting myself in the shoes of a CEO of a big box retailer where high single digit profit margins are difficult, let alone a 30% profit margin. You know, as a recovering retailer, there's a beautiful aspect to zero cost of goods sold, though there are certainly other challenges that come with pulling products out. But it is actually a really exciting business that also kept a couple hundred thousand tons of materials out of landfills. So it's actually a nice green story as well. That's actually fantastic. And I, I've loved seeing this confluence of good for the environment, good for people, good for society and, and good business at the end of the day, too. So then I'm curious, taking all of that for-profit experience and then bringing it into the nonprofit world, what were some of your go-to lessons learned? 
You know, I think what's really interesting is professional management looks quite similar in the nonprofit world as it does in the for-profit world, but the language is different. And I think one of the mistakes sometimes is thinking you can run a nonprofit just like a business. It's not quite just like a business, but you still needs to be professionally managed. And I joked when I first came to Habitat, if I talked about return on investment, that would leave people cold. But if I talked about good stewardship, people would think, well, of course, we should be good stewards. Well, stewardship and return on investment look very similar in practice, but the language really does matter. I actually think it's harder to manage in the nonprofit space than the for-profit world in some ways because the metrics aren't always quite as clear and you have more stakeholders. So I think good businesses manage multiple stakeholders, but the lines are quite clear and the P&Ls are clearer. In nonprofits, you're juggling donors and beneficiaries as well as a myriad of additional stakeholders and communities. And so it can be trickier to get everyone aligned and managing the tension between sometimes the donor world and what the communities want and the programs. But I do think the core elements of how you develop people, how you set strategy, how you put metrics in place, how you hold people accountable, many of the good practices of well-run businesses are desperately needed and highly applicable in the nonprofit space as well. And I think, as I talked about before, now I think that's a mainstream view. It was actually always surprising to me when I was younger that there wasn't an expectation of professional management of nonprofits. And I think it's really healthy now that there's more visibility and accountability for nonprofits. I think another small difference is that if you're a struggling business, the market forces you out. If you're a struggling nonprofit, if you've got a couple of friendly donors, you can kind of limp along forever. So there's not quite as clean a rationalization process in the nonprofit space. So honestly, I would argue we have too many nonprofits and too many that aren't getting to scale. And one of the challenges, I think, is how do we take the best ideas and continue to scale them up enough to meaningfully impact society? Yeah, that makes sense. And I think when people outside of the nonprofit world look in, see a lot of these limping and struggling nonprofits, they attribute that to that nonprofit being, let's say, a slower pace and maybe not as innovative and impactful. So then what are some of the ways that you've been able to foster that growth mindset in Habitat specifically in order to build a really healthy and robust organization? What I loved when I got to Habitat is there was unbelievable sense of mission-driven people. So I wanted to absorb and learn from and really celebrate that incredible sense of servant leadership and passion. I've never been in a place where people are so passionate about what we do. But then could we add to that this sort of professionalism and make things work better? And that's what I heard as I listened to our countries and affiliates and staff. They wanted to keep all the good stuff, but they also wanted things to work better. And so we've been trying to live in that tension. And we did bring in it's interesting, if you look at our leadership team, we've got a lot of very long time field leaders who've been with us more than 20 years, but we've also brought in a wave of people who came out of the private sector or other sectors. Our COO had actually kind of a perfect multi-sector background with GE, McKinsey, Harvard Business School, but also Gates Foundation and running the global food program for the Obama administration. So really nice mix of skills that has worked very well. I think as terms of change management, one of the things which I never planned, but turned out to be incredibly helpful when I look back is when I entered Habitat, we had a couple of major crises. And I do think those allowed a faster pace of change that would have been possible without those. Right before I joined, we had the Indian Ocean tsunami, which was one of the biggest global housing disasters, along with humanitarian disasters in modern history. And then literally three weeks after I was named to the job, the week before I was supposed to start, 
Hurricane Katrina hit the United States, which was the largest U.S. housing disaster in recent decades. And so we had to rally in both those cases to do something at a level of scale we'd never aspired to before. And I think in doing that, that allowed us to tip some sacred cows and do some things differently. Our model was designed to build a few houses in a huge number of locations. And suddenly we needed to build a large number. And we ended up building 25,000 houses after the tsunami, which really built our capacity. And Asia has become our largest region as a result of that. And we raised up a lot of leadership as well as funding. And then similarly, we ended up building over 6,000 houses across the Gulf Coast for victims of Rita and Katrina. And that was by far the largest U.S. sort of set of projects we'd ever taken on. And so both of those taught us a lot about scaling. And then similarly, when the housing crisis hit in 2008, suddenly you had empty houses all over the country. And mayors were saying, we don't need new houses. Help us do something about all these neighborhoods that are in crisis. And that allowed us to take our international community development model and really roll it out across the U.S. So now we've got about 300 communities that are doing formal neighborhood revitalization. And I think there was a lever from that, along with it was one of the few times we've taken significant public funding where we did a major partnership with HUD to buy up empty homes, rehab them and sell them to Habitat families. That is so incredible. The level of positive impact on the world that you and your team are bringing is just amazing. And as Habitat has continued to step up in addressing inequity, we've seen donations increase proportionally as well. So could you speak towards that aspect of the business of running a nonprofit where donations in a nonprofit are similar more or less to revenues in a for-profit context? Thank you. You know, donors was probably the newest world for me. And uh, I would say first a mindset change I went into that really helped me. And this actually started in the church where I learned about volunteers and donors. But you know, when I had to switch from mindset of, I don't want to do fundraising because I'm trying to extract money from people to a mindset of, I'm really helping people have purpose. And now what I really find is I'm not trying to get money from people. I'm really trying to connect people who, have a, who are really excited about what we're doing and give them a chance to have a meaningful impact with their investments. And that gets me much more excited and is more fun. We have multiple levels on donors. Historically, if you looked at Habitat, we've always had a big direct marketing program. Our founder was a significant direct marketer before he came to Habitat. So we have a very large direct marketing program that is, of course, now multi-channel. started out as direct mail, and now still mail is a meaningful part, but of course, people want to be talked to in every channel. So that is a critical source for us of flexible funding and is still very meaningful. We have a large set of corporate partnerships, and Habitat's a little unusual, as you know, John, from your own volunteering, that one of the parts of our value proposition to corporate partners is they can actually come out and participate in the work. And there are a lot of wonderful causes, but that you can't actually touch. And you know, my first engagement with Habitat was actually working for the Walt Disney Company. We sponsored two houses in Orlando, Florida, and I brought my team out for a day. And you know, Disney would invest a fortune in what I would call artificial team building, and actually putting siding on a house alongside a family, helping them build their home was such a powerful team building experience. You know, the senior people rarely are the most skilled, so it kind of shakes up the hierarchy on the build site. And you're doing something that actually matters together. It forces you all to cooperate and do something that you don't do every day. So what we found is corporations come to us for our brand, and our brand is kind of at an exalted state right now. But they often stay because of that sense of building their own culture around engagement. I can certainly share examples of that. And then we do a smaller amount. We historically had not taken a lot of government funding, 
but we do think governments should be funding affordable housing. So we do a lot more on the advocacy side and get some pieces. And we have increasing number of partnerships with complex foundations and multilateral institutions, particularly for low-income countries around the world as well. And what I've learned is so much of it is finding strategic fit. And this is, you know, often where I think donor relationships don't do well is either that we are trying to force donors to do something they don't really want to do, aren't excited about, that fits our needs, or the opposite, which can also be bad, is we turn ourselves upside down to meet a donor's need when that's actually not a good fit either. So I'm a big fan of really sitting down, trying to understand the strategic goals of the partner, and then figure out where's the best fit that actually advances the mission of both organizations. And we've got some really nice examples. One of our longest partners is Whirlpool Corporation. And and they've given me permission to share, but it was a really nice example. They had been donating products to us for a long time, but not getting credit. And they ran an ad campaign that won all kinds of advertising awards with the singer-actress Reba McIntyre. And it was just a, an advertisement of a woman sitting in her kitchen talking about what home means to her. And ultimately, at the end, you realize she's just purchased a Habitat for Humanity home. And of course, she's standing in front of Whirlpool Appliances. And then it very softly at the end said, Whirlpool is proud to donate a range and refrigerator to every Habitat for Humanity home. It went off the charts on market perception. So it was a huge win from a business perspective. It aligned them with the brand. And then they sponsored her tour. And all of their employees who came out and volunteered with Habitat got concert tickets. And they had about 5,000 of their employees volunteer with Habitat. Their employee engagement numbers went through the roof. And so it was a really interesting example. They could actually measure the recruiting and retention benefits of the partnership, and they could measure their perception among customers' intent to purchase. And so that was kind of a win-win-win. And of course, from our perspective, that lowered the cost of providing housing to thousands and thousands of families through those donated appliances. So it was a good example to me of clarity of goal from both perspectives and sort of clear success measures. That is such a great example of combining good returns with good societal impact, which I think is so key for my generation that to some degree has become disenfranchised with the status quo version of capitalism and looking for a role that's both monetarily rewarding and also, I think, oftentimes more importantly, more personally fulfilling. And we need all of it. And I'm pro-business. There's almost nothing better than giving somebody a solid paying job that gives them dignity and the ability to care for themselves and their family. And so I'm totally pro-business. But I do think we're seeing, especially your generation, want to work for companies that have a bigger goal than just making money. Yeah. People are looking for purpose and meaning. And I think there's almost increasingly a ticket to play for companies to hire the best staff and customers similarly want to give their business to companies that are showing that they are investing and giving back to their communities. Yeah, it's all really exciting. And then what we can do here is we can shift to the last part of the conversation here, and that's around the title of the podcast. It's Pattern Recognition. So curious, what are some consistent or recurring themes that you see across successful nonprofits? No, that's a great question. When I look at my peers who are really doing a good job, I think, obviously, it has to be clarity of mission. They've got a clear mission, they're able to communicate that mission effectively. And I think one of the traps for nonprofits is they get spread all over the place and they lose that focus or clarity. I think tied to that clearly is execution. So much is about trust. And if people are going to give their money, their time to an organization, they want to know that that's translating into impact. 
And then third, I would say it's the ability to continuously change and evolve and grow because the world changes. And I think there are just so many examples of nonprofits that were fantastic for a window of time and then weren't able to move and reinvent themselves and come along. So it's interesting to look at the ones that have been able to sustain for decades and decades and decades and still be fresh and and new. And I think increasingly, as as you and I have already talked about, it's the sense of increasingly professional management and the ability to attract and grow leadership, both staff and volunteer. And that second part is really important. Something I really learned in the church world, which is completely dependent on volunteers, is one of my axioms is that we should actually treat our volunteers more like staff and our staff more like volunteers so that the volunteers deserve a job description and accountability and the tools to be able to get their work done and the training they need. And often uh, we waste the efforts of volunteers. The flip side, I think staff ought to be loved the way volunteers are in terms of the way that we kind of win them to our mission. So it overstates it, but I think the best nonprofits are able to, even though they don't pay as well, attract really high caliber leadership. Yeah, I can think about all the times where I've gone to the build site and for the first hour, half the volunteers are useless because they're just standing there trying to figure out what they're supposed to do. (laughs) It's actually amazing when you get a great construction manager who's also fantastic with volunteers because they're patient, they teach you new skills, they let you try new things, but still give you the supervision to make sure they get done right. And all of that creates a memorable experience. And Jonathan, what's a book that's changed your perspective and why? You know, a book that I've given to a lot of people that changed my perspective is actually a book called When Helping Hurts, How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor and Yourself. It's by a couple of guys named Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert. And the reason that changed my perspective is I think like a lot of people growing up, you know, middle-class town in Chapel Hill, and even though I travel fairly broadly, it really helped me think differently about community development and the difference between sort of good charity and investment and bad charity. And I think that the title comes from the idea that unintentionally, a lot of well-intended people can do things that actually undermine the dignity and the markets of the families they want to help in communities. And so it's a thoughtful way about how do you respect and enhance the assets of the communities that you're trying to serve versus actually creating dependency or doing things that actually can hurt dignity or sense of independence. And so I think it's a book anybody that goes on an international service trip ought to read before they go, because I think it's a really thoughtful way to help people think differently about charity. I've got one last question for you here, Jonathan, and that centers around volunteer engagement, because as you know, Habitat has played an integral part in my view of citizenship, having spent my more or less entire high school career involved with my local Habitat chapter, which all ultimately culminated in my Eagle project for the neighborhood back in the day. But as the toils of adulthood have taken over, it's been difficult for me to find time to work with Habitat on a consistent basis. So what are some ways the audience and I can get involved with the organization? Well, I'm so glad you asked because one of those other myths, along with the two I started with, is that the only way to help Habitat is through construction volunteering. And it makes me so sad when I have people say, oh, I love Habitat, but I really don't want to go out and do construction, so I can't help. (laughs) The truth is, we need all kinds of skilled volunteers. And of course, we always need money. You know, people apologize. All I can do is write a check. Well, that has a huge impact as well. Another myth is that because people donate materials, we don't need funds. It takes money to get land and to make Habitat work. So we need people who can help with our stores. I talked about the retail stores. We need people to be advocates, and that's really important. 
one of the big opportunities for all of us is to fight nimbyism with yes in my backyard. Can we have housing policies that welcome people and create mixed income, mixed use communities, which are really the best model for all of us? And the data is pretty powerful, but we need skilled volunteers in other places. We need people who have finance skills, legal skills, real estate skills, who can mentor families, who can teach and train. So there are actually a lot. We need board members of our local chapters. So there are lots of ways to get engaged. And certainly we welcome that. If for any of your listeners who have never been overseas to an amazing opportunity as a way to soak in is to go on a global village trip and spend a week or two building in one of our international programs, which that's really about getting your heart engaged. And then hopefully some of those other things I talked about become opportunities after that. That's fantastic. Well, Jonathan, that is all the time we have here today. I mean, I can't express just how much joy and gratitude I feel hearing how well the organization is doing and the scale you're operating at. I mean, touching millions of people's lives in a really meaningful way across the globe. I mean, just truly fantastic. John, it's great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me on your show. Yep. And we'll talk soon. Bye. Once again, a huge thank you to Jonathan for joining us today. I cannot express enough the gratitude that I feel for Jonathan and his team working every day to make an impact globally. So if listening to this episode excited you at all about being a part of the Habitat mission, I would strongly encourage you to check out your local Habitat chapter and find ways to get involved. In the meantime, if you enjoyed the show, I'd appreciate if you gave a quick rating and review as well as send any feedback or guest recommendations my way. You can reach me on Twitter at John Heasy, that's J-O-H-N-H-E-E-Z-Y, or on Instagram at John G. Hoot, that's J-O-H-N-G-H-U. So thank you all for tuning in, and I'll talk to you next week. Bye.